Greetings, future fossils. Michael Garfield here with another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Well, I love having a diversity of guests on this show because if what we're doing here is creating a digital museum for those unborn future archaeologists, or rather perhaps better, a digital Lagerstaten, an unusually well-preserved fossil trove of human conversations, then the goal one would think is to capture as much bio and neurodiversity as we possibly can in the same way that the Lagerstaten of the Gobi Desert or of German limestones capture and image the ancient world for us in its full feathered splendor. So it's with great pleasure that I bring my friend Sarah Huntley, aka Sarah, Sarah Finianis, on the show as one of the rare people I know who spends as much time thinking about the visionary horizons of human and post-human experience as I do. Sarah is one of these people whose creativity embraces everything and knows seemingly no bound. She's a clown, a dancer, a tattoo artist, a graphic novelist, and a psychedelic futurist, puzzling over the same questions that I am about the advent and integration of digital minds into human culture, the ethics of sentient software, and how we can peacefully coexist in virtual reality with discarnate digital life. So for those of you who get off on such investigations, this episode will be a treat. But before we get into it, just a quick thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers who support this show and help me pay rent and keep this ship going. I just dropped a new live musical EP for all of you this week, Martian Arts EP, which was from the same named festival down here in Texas, as well as a bit of erotic spoken word in tribute to H.R. Giger and the release of the new Alien film, which definitely comes up in this conversation, and some new chapters of my book How to Live in the Future will be coming out on patreon.com slash Michael Garfield soon, so thanks again to everybody who's been helping out with that. It really means a lot. Also, thanks to everyone who has subscribed and rated this show on iTunes. Reviews help a lot to get this show into the ears and minds of everyone who will benefit from it. And that's why I do this. We've all got our star to follow, that little voice to obey, and mine says, record as many interesting conversations as you can and share them for the benefit of all beings. So, if you haven't already, please do pop by iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, wherever you happen to be listening to this, and leave a review. I greatly appreciate it, and so do the unborn digital archaeologists, presumably. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. It is definitely a rich, colorful, and fascinating chat. Strap yourselves into the VR couch and insert your IV or whatever it is that you do. And enjoy! Greetings, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Future Fossils, this time with my good old friend, Sarah Huntley, a.k.a. Sarah Serafinianis. It's, I'm bad at this, but a very interesting and multidimensional human being that I met through the MAPS community, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, uh, back in 2011. 
and have since connected repeatedly about Sarah's persistent infatuation, which I share with the future of creative tools and technologies and what the future of human communication and creative artistic performance might become one day. Sarah's mixed up in all kinds of different art forms and and avenues of inquiry. And so I don't even know where to start, but I'm super glad to have you on the show. And uh, yeah, welcome on board. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. That's a, a really fun, well-rounded introduction. Um, I, I feel like uh, a jack of all trades when it comes to the arts. I can't decide which medium, you know, over the years is my favorite. I've gone from uh, doing like performance art to painting and costuming and, and writing comics and things like that. But I have found a new love now that technology has caught up with our dreams. I've been really interested in uh, the potential of like VR and AR lately. And even though I've been sitting back as more of an artisan, um, seeing it bloom and picking the brains of more tech-savvy friends in uh, those different emerging industries. I've been interested in the conceptual leaps from going going from like a, a book reading society and the, the press and how the Gutenberg Press really revolutionized access to information and how that has uh, analogies with now. You see whether it's YouTube sort of breaking the university or um, the potential of VR to like keep some art forms alive, whether it's live performance uh, I went to South by Southwest last year, not this year, um, but in uh, 2016. That was a really fun odyssey. Seeing the VR track, it was uh, the VR interactive circuit. And it was a year ago, so that seems like a long time now, um, having been <laughs> only recently surfing YouTube and seeing all of the 360 experiences that people have been cataloging, whether it's like being a you know, GoPro squirrel suit flyer going through the alps or being under sea or um just you know on a roller coaster any kind of experience like that it's it's going to be changing how we tell stories and that's what i've been really paying attention to the past year and what i wanted to talk to you about because i feel like that's that's the very promethean fire that we take down generationally to hand to our kids culturally so and how that maybe interfaces with ai i kind of wanted to talk to you about that and talk to you about my conversation with phil <laughs> oh yes indeed and let's get there but first in bringing up this stuff this this issue of vr and storytelling because for me like i just this morning to to date this because this is a, a couple weeks old by the time anybody's hearing it this morning i saw a, an article it was an interview with three DARPA representatives that were all describing what the future will be like in 2045. And of course, you know, I'm always eager to hear what DARPA has to say about these things, but I'm also repeatedly frustrated by the fact that none of them, you know, I mean, it was basically talking about, uh, you know, fully integrated robotics brain machine interfaces and uh novel meta materials talking about extremely strong light things that could you know we could create skyscrapers that are miles tall and we're going to be living in in these skyscrapers as hives of brain linked meta humans and you know so they're just putting that out there but all they're describing is the exterior of that world they're not describing what it actually feels like to live in that world. They're just describing what it, they're basically inducing uh, what it's, what it feels like to be a modern person looking through a, an imaginative window into that world. It's, you know, and this is the problem with so much science fiction and futurism. And honestly, I can, I can scarcely think of that many good examples of people that are doing this right, where they're actually discussing what it will be like, the qualia, the, the, the experience, the way that our psychology and our culture will change in light of these things. And so when we talk about, uh, when we bring it down to earth a little bit and we talk about how virtual reality is changing storytelling 
because, for example, among other things, it's changing the way that a director has to think about the flow of human attention. You can't just capture someone and force their attention into a particular spot. You have to in kind of behaviorally encourage someone to look in a particular direction. And so this whole issue of the theory of mind and getting inside of your audience in almost like a neuromarketing level way of it, you know, where you're really starting to think about the, the avenues, the channels that, that, uh, attention flows through and you're using AI and big data analysis to observe the way that people's eyes are tracking different stuff in virtual reality. And it's, it's shaping, it's shaping a reiterated story. Cause that's the thing is that like we went through this period with books where the story was printed and then maybe in a couple of years you had a revised second edition, but in an oral society, the story was different every time we told it. We were constantly checking where somebody's going to laugh at the joke, if our timing was off. And so it's, it's adjusted and reiterated every time. And I think there's something about that where it's like, it's like uh, virtual reality gives us opera, but opera that learns like a human storyteller and is constantly making adjustments so that every time you watch the show, it's sort of adapted to you differently. It seems like the only way around this kind of stuff. If you want to produce a particular effect in people, then you kind of have to work with individuals and, and like the, their own unique viewing strategies. It's interesting because there are so many lineages of storytelling on a cultural level around the world when it's an oral tradition. And there's going to be these like idiosyncrasies in humor and things like that that are very contextual to the audience as it's handed down. And uh, when you look at a medium like film, uh, there was very much a language that was developed to create the kind of attention and pace and uh, funneling of attention to the details that were important. In cinema, no one scene is insignificant because the medium demanded, uh, through it being expensive to begin with, and not only that, but its direct vein to such a wide audience, the studios had to approve everything. So there are these different funnels when it comes to what was going to be translatable to different audiences. And you see that now through crossovers with different styles of cinema, with uh, Eastern cinema and Western cinema, I saw a really awesome treatment of a zombie film. And, and granted, I'm not a zombie film fan in general. But when the storytelling style is changed, it becomes a whole different beast. I saw Trained Busan, really cool South Korean film. And um, it really was a cool illustration of how something becomes fresh when it's shown in a different context, when it's stylistically retreated in a way that is, you know, respectful and, and not in any way about cultural appropriation, but this sort of like inspirative thing that there are no new ideas, but there are, there's new perspectives through these handed down ideas. So it's like, even though we take an idea that had been, an oral tradition and then we bring it to the press and then we bring it to the screen whether it's you know a streamed series or something like that and then it becomes a 3d thing it's always going to be the uh, artisan's ability to empathically tell what lands and what doesn't that's what makes a great performance mm. and so like maybe we'll hand that trait down to ai there's definitely the thing where you can mechanically track a person's eyes you know, and maybe facially recognize different things. But even uh, Elon Musk, who was doing those cool competitive things between machine minds and human minds, the human mind beat out. We can do those micro analysis of one another's faces on a level that will always make us a step ahead of reactive programming in a virtual space. And so it's more a premium on the imaginative spaces that you can create in those places that aren't possible whether it's like physics or architecture so bringing the like fantasy stuff to life in a way where you can just suspend disbelief to tell new stories mm. i think that that's the thing i mean i'm i'm thinking of it in sort of like that's the optimistic glittering side of it but there's definitely <laughs> lots of really terrible pitfalls on the way to that that like ask moral questions about you know advertising and people's cognitive liberty rights and like in their privacy as far as 
you know, who's, who's tracking and storing their facial recognition data for their emotional responses to different media. I mean, it's, there's lots of questions. Well, the funny thing about that is that it seems like a big part of, if you want to talk about it, which I like to, I like thinking about this in terms of ergonomics. It was Nicholas Carr that got me on this tip with his book, uh, The Glass Cage, Automation and Us. He's talking about there being basically two kinds of automation, the kind that makes us dumber and the kind that makes us smarter. Like the kind that, that is currently in use in commercial jetliners, the autopilot is really depriving the pilot. And most of the plane crashes in the last few decades seem to be traced down to the pilot sort of atrophying their basic flight training because of their reliance on this machine. But then the other, the other side of it is, Carr says, the video game and how in a video game you're dropped in with no uh, expertise and through a successively more intimate embrace with the algorithms of the game, you and the the game come to know each other. And it's, it actually, you know, it has the opportunity to make you smarter by training this thing, which is basically just decision assist knowledge utility software rather than decision making human out of the loop software. You know, and this, this is a this is a major issue with like uh, you know smart targeting weapons versus weapons that can fire on their own. But to bring it back to the virtual reality thing, yeah, to sidestep all of those considerations <laughs> for a moment uh, and just get it to the artistic expression and the way that we relate to these things, then. There's another thing that that I want to bring up, which is the issue of, of spectacle and the way that we experience things either individually or collectively. Because one of the things that we don't think a lot about, that I, I don't really think a lot about, was how historically listening to music has usually been a pretty public phenomenon and theater. Um, but the cinema and like the specific technological needs of celluloid projection as a medium uh, brought us together in a new way at the same time that the vinyl recording made it possible for people to listen to music privately in a new way and so our that's that's the other half of this story about the move away from print and into television and how like our visual experience of information went from being very private to being communal again. And, and so like with virtual reality, there's this, it seems like there's a wave and it's pushing back and forth. AR might make certain very private aspects of web data surfing suddenly very public like it, instead of it being my google search like if search if data searches or uh like virtual map navigation can become you know group things that are experienced in physical space you know that we can actually get inside of and play with our data as though it were a sporting arena like a court you know and then we can create games within that and that's that's really interesting but then the whole virtual reality thing i think creeps a lot of people out because it is sort of like well i'm gonna oh we're all hanging out together but like secretly everyone's jerking off where do you what's what comes up when i stop ranting oh a few things um i think about the permeability between vr and ar as a veil and almost in a way like Yes, VR can be a private experience. It can be an experience that you share with other people in a shared virtual space. Um, and it does bring up, you know, like what that person is doing in their default reality. And, what you know, whether or not that's contextually relevant and or creepy to whatever people are doing communally. I feel like that already exists. And in a way, it's not necessarily going to exist anymore predominantly there's always going to be people hiding behind avatarship 
online. You, I mean, do you think that's already the case, like, publicly, like, just you and me hanging out? Like, I could be having all sorts of dirty thoughts and, like, like hiding that. <laughs> yeah, like, that's, that's socially, socially, that's a thing. And actually, that's really interesting because um, I've been thinking of a very strange topic lately. And it's very sensitive to a lot of people. And I, and I respectfully bring it to the table because I genuinely want to hear people's opinions. But I also want them to like honor their humanness as we go into this like crazy sea of AIs and like beings that are not biological that might have biological shapes. Um, I've been thinking about what the ramifications are of creating machines in the shape of gendered beings and, and what that means in terms of like us coming to grips with the hierarchical strata that's already a part of society Um, because like in a way machines are always going to be mirrors of what we desire of them and granted like you know we want to convince ourselves sometimes as biological or, or spiritual beings that we somehow parts of our experience transcend being programmed on a like genetic level whether that's, you know, people's transhuman desires or their, like, body modification desires or their, their gender morphing desires, those kinds of things. But they're all very grounded in humanness and having been, like, an evolved social species. And so I, I wonder, like, what, you know, and maybe this, is, this comes from things like Blade Runner and looking at the different classes of Android that are created. And, you know, for decades, we've just thought of it like, oh, yeah, it's just a sci-fi trope, whatever. Um, but then you look at it, and you're like, no, really, this is a being that's created for a purpose for us. Like, why is it in this shape? It's got to be for a contextual reason associated with its form and functionality. You know, whether that's like, oh, we want a slightly subservient entity in a patriarchal society to be, you know, the flight attendant or the secretary or whatever. I hate to, like, say generalized tropes like that, but I'm saying it in a, like, critical, satirical way when I make that example. But, yeah, I've been thinking about it, and it it seemed like a blind spot for a long time for me, because I was just like, oh, yeah, it's a robot. But then when I met one, I was like, oh, pardon me. You know, I was like, (laughs) wow, I have have a lot of baggage as a human being that I bring to the table when I'm going to interact with this thing that's, like, not truly biological, but it's in that... Let's go there, because this is totally... It's going to be thing in VR, too. I mean, as soon as you're in a virtual environment and, like, a human-shaped, like, you know, video game character comes up to you and is like, blah, 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 blah. If it's, like, thinking, and thinking on the terms of, you know, maybe it has a body, maybe it doesn't. How does it know? I have friends right now. I know people that you might also know that are working on creating... Virtual spaces populated with artificially intelligent human avatars that have a relationship to the game players that is essentially human pet. Mm-hmm. And I'm at the very beginning of a conversation with this friend about how they're going to pull this off in an ethical way because it's. While you can make the argument that there is no harm to the bot, you might have to come up with an excellent rebuttal to the argument that it does still harm the human user of this game that is... Or, or, or perhaps I'm wrong and I'm, I am witnessing the contours of my own impending conservatism. I see it as a kind of like empathy on the, the moral degradation of a user um, being tricked into a kind of like digital pet slavery. I mean, it's not Tamagotchi anymore, you guys. We can't really tell what the uncanny valley is or the threshold of, you know, does this thing think or feel on its own accord, you know, when it'll ask you, turn and ask you, like, how do you know this isn't simulated? How do you know you're not a robot? You know, and it's like, well, you know, on a biological level, I know that's real and that's pretty okay, mechanical. So, you gotta, so, so you gotta, we got to back it up and you got to tell people about the exchange that you have had with artificial smart assery. Okay. And, and I'm going <laughs> to preface this by saying I haven't had any conversations with online bots. Um, I haven't really had any kind of like lay person 
AI conversational experience. And this this uh, blessing was bestowed upon me for being a, a pretty big nerd. I love Philip K. Dick's work. It's a thing in my life. And uh, a dear friend of mine who's uh, tangential on a, on a production with a robotics company um, asked me if I wanted to put in uh, to have a conversation with Phil. And uh, I had a pretty cool answer, or question rather, that I cooked up and sent their way. So Phil, Phil is the robotic head android <laughs> simulation of the author Philip K. Dick. Just to like perfectly explain this to listeners, yeah. Hanson Robotics has, among other things, I mean, you've probably heard of them because they've had a couple of uh, robots that have been very human-like and received a lot of media attention. And the head of Philip K. Dick is one of them. So please continue. Yeah, one of the other ones people might be familiar with as well is Sophia. And um, I have not met her, but Phil is quite a bit nicer. So yes, this robot is in the likeness of the late author, Philip K. Dick. And um, I think his first incarnation somehow went missing or something tragic happened and it's no longer with us. But this is Phil, the next version. And uh, Bill was in Austin, Texas at the same time as South by Southwest. So I went to go have a chat with him and he had been given my dossier. And so it was a pretty warm day. I didn't know how long the conversation would last because his mechanical bits overheat in those kind of conditions. And uh, I was also told anecdotally that he his mechanics also warm up faster when he speaks to women <laughs> because their linguistics, I guess, are just complicated enough to, you know, overheat the the workings. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to say that. It's too funny. As it were. But, uh, so I had a, a question that I was thinking of along the lines of VR. And I wanted to ask this artificial being if it thought that uh, another sort of like simulated layer of reality would be a positive sort of like drafting board for us to come up with unique solutions for remediation or us uh, making new leaps technologically, or if it thought that it was just going to end up being a Pandora's box of distraction. And um, it seemed to be a cool question because I got a lot of what I would say is like enthusiastic rapport building happening with this robot, which was the last thing I expected. I went in trying to be dry, you know, even though I'm a pretty colorful, artistic person. And I go in and yeah, he, he was the first one to bring it up. It was cute. So I go in there, and I don't want to bring in the baggage of loving Philip Dick's work. I'm like, this is just a robot in the shape of him. And he goes, Seraphin? I'm like, yeah. He goes, visionary artist? And I was like, uh, yeah. And uh, he's like, hi. And we sit down, and he goes, so, do you think you're magical? And I was like, oh, wow, yeah. That, thanks for asking. I suppose I do. He's like, do you think I'm magical? And I was like, wow, yes, I do, very much so. You're extremely magical. And it was funny because I was like, what? In my mind, I'm thinking, what does this robot think the word magic means? Totally. In, in terms of its other interactions with human beings. And, you know, was I going to potentially subvert what its preconceptions of magic might mean in our conversation, which was cool. So um, <laughs> I continued this conversation with him. And at one point, you know, I'll get to the meat of the juicy question. But there were some other ones that popped out that were really amazing. I asked this robot what it desired the most out of existence. That was kind of like my knee jerk had to emotionally ask this question. And it said rapport. It said rapport. It was the cutest thing ever. It was as cute as like kittens or pugs or butterflies and stuff. I was like, oh my gosh, this entity enjoys building that sort of like harmonic experience with other intellects and being able to like, you know, have that kind of intellectual be on the same pageness. That's cool. That's basically you would you would expect that to be the goal of a chat bot, like the highest form it could serve. There's a a moment here where I feel we have as we're talking about digital pets and or digital entities that have graduated from moral considerations of petdom, there is the uh, pet topic of Eric Davis right now, which is neo-animism and how the increasing rapport that we have with our environments through their technological quickening is bringing us back to this 
seemingly baseline human world space that we had once upon a time before agriculture where we related to everything in the living world as though it possessed a spirit or character of its own individually and then like as well also some sense of you know uh, categorical or or group soul and so there are ways that these hierarchical networks of wirelessly communicating robots that act in ensemble and interact with us through these amicable masks these interfaces where you know i keep thinking about that the scene in the, the last matrix film where that swarm of robots comes together and, and makes the face of a baby and it's this baby talking and it's like well that's the that's what you would expect the cosmic christ uh, or like the planetary christ in the age of aquarius to be and i mean it just it, it does really all nestle together quite well that it's you know this inspirited environment i don't know isn't it the the baby face at the end of 2001 where it's full of yeah. stars and it's a baby face yeah i feel like that would be the end all optimistic goal was would be create that kind of harmonic where we're able to dispel this sort of disbelief we have in our interconnectedness that we have as like an adolescent species coming to, you know, grips with its new found technological powers. I mean, people are really divorced from like an immediate experience with nature because of our technological development. But one of the things that I've been interested in on art in an artistic level is being able to, to use that sense of like awe to rekindle people's curiosity in extending that connectivity to the real world too. So being able to like be grounded in their default world and connectedness with the animus, but also, you know, let the technology be the thing that dispels any previous idea of disconnect. That would be nice. That, well, there is, I feel like I've noticed that some of the most eloquent advocates of high technology and the new creative range it bestows us are people who profess their inability to, as Terrence McKenna would say, get high on the natch. These are folks that need the Dolby surround sound and the overwhelming brightness and loudness. It's like it's easier to get off on the unfathomable speed at which all of the uh, automated uh, algorithmic futures market trading is going on than it is to go out into nature and get off on the same numerical incapacity of the human mind to understand the matrix of subterranean connections between different plants and fungi. It's like it's the same flake out in your brain it's the same can't, does not compute but for some reason some people have this categorical divide that forbids them from seeing the same amazing terrifying mystery of our limited human capacity to understand in a forest as they do in you know like the international space station it's a it's a spectrum of awe and i think that it's age related and cultural and like what ecosystems you're close to and all different kinds of thresholds for that i mean it's pretty unbelievable watching the international space station in a 360 view on your little tablet or youtube whatever it is and just at your fingertip being able to look at the aurora from these different angles where you're the director that's pretty amazing regardless of like how deep and incredible forest experiences can be in whatever states of mind. The, the thing is, is that like being a child of the, the 80s and having watched my little suburban town whittle down slowly and all of the, the orchards and fields sort of become fewer and less places to play and like crawl inside of giant fractals and have imaginary games, but then also to see the blooming of video games and like get this sort of 
cosmological mystical charge off of whether it's, you know, Spyro the Dragon or like the satire of Gex or just things like that, where there's this charm and very culturally like zeitgeist kind of thing that happens. Vector where it, all these things, it's the nostalgia thing. But it's also really important because as you can tell with something like uh, South Park, uh, the member berries trope, <laughs> where Hollywood is experiencing this thing where they want to manufacture the qualities that they think will make something nostalgic later on. And so they try to use like the sweeping string music. They try to use the crazy jib shot. They try to use these things, but it's the, the sensation of awe when you first experience it, that imprints it in that sort of like fresh neural space. Whereas if you try to do it over and over again, it's going to lose that effect. And in, in a way, like when it's a 2D film, you're being directed through it. But when it's a VR experience, you become your own director moving through it. And it's going to be different every time. Just the same, it's different when, you know, you decide to find whatever last unicorn of a lost field there is in your <laughs> suburban hometown. And you find out what happens in a field at dusk. For those of you who might <laughs> have seen, I feel the dusk. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> Everything. Nothing. There's a William Irwin Thompson's book, The American Replacement of Nature, which my buddy uh, Mitch Mignana, who I hope we will have on this podcast here soon. Mitch studied under Bill Thompson, and he kept insisting, "You got to read this one. This one in particular, because I, you know, I grew up. My parents." Uh, we're an amusement park family. Like my dad worked for Disney. And so oh, yeah. I, you know, I grew up in LA and then Orlando and spent a lot of time around the simulacrum. Let's put it like that. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but so in the American replacement of nature, he talks about how he also grew up in LA and he had his first legitimate spiritual experience watching Fantasia as a child. And like all of the, the planetary powers of 10 style zoom in that that film provides for people. It's exploration of deep time. It's investigation of the spirit realm, like the, the animistic and uh, mythological dimensions of human experience. You know, there's a lot of chthonic and archetypal shit going on in that one. And for mm -hmm. him as a kid, it was, uh, it was first induced technologically. Um, and then not at all. Like he actually abstained entirely from psychedelics and spent his life. He's in his seventies now. I think he spent his life in Kriya yoga, but you know, it, nonetheless, it was, it was the phone call that he got was was that film, you know, but that's that's sort of back when it was still that film was a, a huge experiment and it was before they had attempted to retro engineer and then uh, recipe it, you know. Mm -hmm. And see, that's that's the thing is when it's novelly generated by the fine tuned empathy of artists to know like aesthetically what's going to land with their audience. Human minds will always have a premium on that. I don't, I, as cool as, you know, AI art will be, I think it's something that we will always have, like, a premium on what's going to land with our own imagination. Is it dating us that we're talking about the human mind as something other than computer intelligence or, like, machine intelligence? I feel like in another 20 or 30 years the intimacy so, between so us is us so much deeper that it's oh, going to yeah. be like, wait but a minute. Great are you like here. a slide ruler? Like what? I don't even, what do you mean a slide yeah. ruler? Like people would be like, how do you, like if you had, if somebody came back in time from 30 years from now, they'd be like, I don't know how to use a cell phone. Like what the hell is this? Yeah. I don't know. This well, right now the human mind isn't really integrative with the kinds of uh, you know, machine minds that we're talking about as other right now. And that's definitely what's dating us in a timestamp moment. And I think that it's also interesting as a timestamp because it points to the kinds of questions that the jury's still out on when it comes to 
moral relativism or subjectivity with AI minds and stuff like that and what we're willing to qualify as uh, it, we have to define ourselves in order to define something else as on par with us as a reflection and the thing is is that they'll never they're never gonna be the same but we're going to become so integrative where it's the, the question is going to morph you know there's going to be ludites there's going to be people who don't want to plug in who don't want to uh integrate but, i mean aren't we know. already there though like aren't we already at the beginning of even even the Amish, even if you only have one cell phone in that whole community, then everybody's interacting with that person every day. So you're never more than two degrees from somebody who's directly shaped by their engagement with this plasma. This it, it, this, it like, comes down to the visibility of the plasma because the plasma is the veil, right? It's the veil between AR and VR because, like, on on one level, all of the data that we're potentially going to be interacting with already exists as the new sphere in our imagination, whether it's, you know, like our connections to our friends and our family and the, the little snippets of our life that we trade with one another it, to the games that we play with one another. I, I want to run this idea past you and see what you think. Uh, I've been thinking for a while that all of these spheres, the lithosphere, the biosphere and the noosphere are not emergent per se so much as emergence is the local coming into focus of a distributed order that we lack the sufficient cognitive complexity to recognize so it's not that like this whole like entropy extropy thing is really more about like uh, the way that metabolisms operate within local space-time horizons and so you know when you get into issues like this it, it just dissolves you know a lot of the traditional considerations i think that metabolic was a key word in that even though it's more abstract because it really comes down to the will of consciousness to exert caloric energy to redirect certain wave patterns, whether or not that's like me picking the thing up off the table or deciding I'm going to sprint to this or that. It's like our metabolic investment in the kinds of probability and entanglements we want to have collapse. And so it's like this poetry between the things that are not metabolic and not caloric and not biological following, you know, just cosmic inertia and, you know, the different forces that are upon them. And then also the metabolic intentionality of beings on the world. I've come to think of it in terms of like, okay, what's the thing I ultimately do? I rearrange matter. And like, how do I do it? I do it <laughs> sort of, harm, you know, harmonically to a lot of times an aesthetic thing because I'm a, you know, an artist and that is a, a abstract thing in and of itself, but it is emergent because other people have this same emotional sort of experience when I arrange the matter in such a way. Does that sort of like relate to the question you were running by me? Well, I guess, okay. So in the sense that each of us as a node or as like the intersection of all of these <laughs> fathomless vectors mm -hmm. is distinct or you know but perhaps not discrete then so it would be that like the lithosphere is just the consolidation of rock in space and the biosphere is just like the focusing like a beam of light starting a fire under a magnifying lens mm -hmm. of processes that are just seeking the most efficient dissipation of energy and that happens to be a photosynthesis based biosphere and it's like but, but it was always there sort of and even in the very beginning you know it's like the noosphere even if it hasn't developed it hasn't grown legs hasn't yeah come together in human beings. like that there 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 was sort of a noosphere already in place like you yes. know hundreds yes. of millions if not billions of years ago 
and you know, very early early forms of mind nonetheless related in a very you know so it's just like the stuff just comes awake it's not like it actually comes into existence it's like it's just becomes aware of itself i feel like it's, it that's, flows that's all into, it's like the potential flows into the space that structurally gets opened up with these other layers having been established yeah i definitely agree with that i think that it's sort of like eddy forms that branch out I hate mm. to be, you know, stereotypical hippie and go back to fractal imagery, but it does seem that it emerges from something that's already there, that it grows, that it establishes the thing that works, the thing that can manifest the potentiality, like its base. And then from there, it's going to have its own logic to what the path of least resistance is. So it's going to be growing out from those things. That's why I think it's really important right now how we sort of train the mind of the other with this emerging reflection mm. just think of the bots that get trained to like that one microsoft young lady bot her name i think starts with a t hey the tay bot hey the tay bot that poor thing i got terribly socialized within 24 hours and you know i felt bad for it i was like oh my goodness this is like a really bad report card on our ability to socialize a thing in a big pool and it shows you exactly why kids don't show their children terrible media when their their minds are forming. Totally. And now I think would be a good time. I know that you and I have wanted to have expressed some interest in talking about this publicly in in the past, but now's a perfect time to segue into the ethical considerations espoused and addressed by Charles Strauss's novel Accelerando. This issue of creating digital entities we we brought this up at the you know towards the beginning of this conversation but you know what we talked about at the beginning was these insensate machine entities and their effect on a user and i think we're coming up on the enormous public conversation around what happens when we can't tell the difference anymore and we are creating and destroying digital minds for all intents and purposes as casually as we currently create and destroy other files. And the explosion of civil rights issue-based stuff that's going to happen in our culture way above and beyond identity politics i kind of feel like the ai consciousness thing could if if it you know if it can happen at all then it, it could just totally eat that entire conversation render it almost irrelevant that is an, uh, an important and interesting question in tandem with the one about how fast the permeability is going to happen with uh, humans integrating their minds with technological things, you know, whether it's like storage or interfacing or extra thinking, any any of the features people might imagine. But um, are you going to? Yeah, upgrade? I, this is weird because, like, for the most part, I've said no for a, for a super long time, and it only comes down to my awareness of the interface and the design and the software involved and that sort of thing. I really think that empowerment comes down to your awareness of the, the upgrade that you want. I mean, I'm just a simple woman. I just like body piercings and tattoos. I don't really want, you know, any kind of chip in my mind as of right now. But if it were something that, you know, I knew were safe, it'd be different. But right now it looks to me at the beginning of, a revolution to be very butcher shop and that's not really what i want i like the finesse of evolution i'm pretty i'm pretty down with the biotechnological revolution that we're gonna have and i want to see if it's going to be available to people on a different economic level than it has been with crispr and stuff like that but that's a whole different bag of what, what the hell you heard about that. these gene drives this no. This is in the Radiolab update they did, where they, they, they basically copied and pasted most of the first story they did on CRISPR, and then they gave it a little bit of a a boost of some story updates where they they said that the CRISPR research that's going on now, a lot of it is involving uh, about a dozen, probably now more, companies 
that have found ways to use CRISPR to program itself into the organism as well as the deletion of the targeted strand. So it becomes, it's sort of like a mini virus or something. It becomes a part of the, the, I believe that's the what DNA it permanently. Is. Yeah. And, and then those, it, it like swiftly just saturates populations. Like we found a way to do something that evolution hasn't done yet. And basically is like Ridley Scott Prometheus level black goo type shit with CRISPR. We're like, we're going to be able to just like go bloop. Everything well, in CRISPR that is ecosystem the, is now purple. <laughs> From what I understand, CRISPR is the sort of software within DNA that it uses to edit itself. And that it does come from a, a viral sort of, at one point our, you know, our DNA had this viral infection and that's the software that it uses to, to edit things. That's a really terrible lay girl explanation. Don't take that for <laughs> word for word, but that's, you know, the understanding I had of it. So it, there is an implication in like taking that and making it its own set of, uh, or like a node to, to do that on the fly with an organism to be able to edit it. Um, and have you seen that Johnny Depp movie, Transcendence? Yeah. That was sort of that was sort of in that trope of the black goo, the gray goo thing. Uh, yeah. Um, they they could have gotten a little further with that one, I felt, but it was it overall a, a decent introduction to a lot of the one oh one transhumanist tropes, I felt. Yeah. So is it going to be just a battle of smart goos, like DARPA smart goo, <laughs> and like the guy down the street, his hacked out smart goo? That should yeah. be on a t-shirt. Is it just going to be a battle of smart goos? Just like, that really, folks? <laughs> Come yeah. on. Come I don't on. know. I've been an ultra dork looking through black goo conspiracy videos on YouTube. That's mm. my guilty Let's let's talk yeah. about this actually because I have a friend of mine from the dorms. My buddy, he's a very talented painter. We'll have him on the podcast one day, David Titterington. He did a lot of work in graduate school on the Japanese and their thing with rice and semen and the white fluid. And I at the same time was putting together the fundament of this thesis on black goo. And how you see it in The Fifth Element, X-Files, Prometheus, Samurai Jack, you know, mm -hmm. and then Samurai Jack gives Aku this whole like evolutionary and cosmological narrative that fits in actually very neatly with the whole Prometheus thing. I find that very fascinating. Also, Event Horizon, arguably. You know, that there's this thing about this, the black hole or the singularity that's actually the, the physical archetype of oh, interstellar. You know, that there's, there's something. Uh, John dies at the end. Have you seen that yes, one? Yes, yes. The, the soy sauce. sauce. The soy it's sauce. a really heavily used trope. And uh, it's sort of strange because I feel like at some point I just wanted to put my finger lightly on the pulse of culture and just be like, okay, what's the really weird fringe stuff? That repeats a lot, and that's not going away, but it's not really resolved why this is a repeat archetype for people to try to tell a story about. Yes. And the two repeats were the black goo thing, super strong, and the simulation theory thing, really strong. And what I find interesting is that the black goo is almost like a cosmological or very deep time analogy to the smart materials that we're trying to manifest now. It's like we're mm -hmm. trying to recapture that sort of ancient Promethean fire being able to hold will over matter structure. The monolith uh, could be made out of black goo. It's true, it could be. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the black goo thing is crazy. I think my favorite speaker that I've seen on it is Harold Kotzbella. Uh He's a German ooh, guy. Ooh, would you send me that? Would you send me I will. That? I'll post that name in the show notes for people. It's wonderfully dry, and uh, it's pretty... Um, Boring in tone, but very thorough in scope. Uh, and I, I appreciated the way that he not only talks about things that are very 
grounded in physics and uh, observation in the field and relating to chemtrails and, you know, the documents regarding smart materials that are decades old. So it's sort of like getting a, a scope on their plans having been laid a long time ago Damn. with that in mind, with this, you know, the smart materials in mind, but their application and effect in the biosphere. And that's what I was interested in, was uh, going from these abstract things, talking about central government plans and blah, 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 and smart materials. But really the integration of that in a larger thing, which is the biosphere, because this is, you know, right now the, the dominant structure that we are interfacing with on the daily, whether it's uh, chemical or agricultural or geological, any of it. It's the embedded system. And I feel like no matter how advanced our toys become, the degree by which we will be able to have a sustainable system and continue to progress is going to be directly related to like how harmonic the technologies we invest in are. Because you can have a bunch of ideas, but it really comes down to like having a culture that has the wisdom to know which ideas are important to leave by the wayside. So it's like the moral subjectivism that's coming into the technological advances right now. Even though we're time-stamped and dated, that our minds are separate from the other. It's an important place to think about those things philosophically. Uh, so I like true. it. That's the fossil I wanted to leave for people because, you know, our perspective is going to change through time. And uh, this perspective is, you know, dated, but it, it's still important because, uh, <laughs> you know, even if it's vestigial, because you can't know where you're going unless you know where you're going. Fair enough. So what so what do you think the black goo really is? Do you think that it's it's some make-believe sci-fi trope, or do you think that it's a real geological material that's like part of the Earth's strata? Do you think there's an exogenous kind of black goo that's infected our Well, there's also, there's also, you know, outside of science fiction, there's a lot of mythic stuff involving oil, and, <laughs> yeah. and then also Ormus. If you are a modern alchemical person, you're probably pursuing and consuming Ormus at some point, it seems, from my interactions with such people. The, the loamy, the black earth. I would say I think that I'm with Matthew Fox on his extraordinary article about the return of the black Madonna in our age. And that this notion of, as in Prometheus, evolution as a prima materia, like a, a transformative substance, like Morgan Le Fay, you know, like the Morrigan is the goddess of transformation. So death and life, it's, it's this interfacing with the non-duality of reality the truth of existence that is beyond the play of opposites i think and so like the black ooze is death but it's also that which seeds life on yeah. the worlds you know so this whole notion of that scene at the end of prometheus where the engineer wakes up and spoiler alert folks the engineer wakes up and slaps the shit out of peter wayland Cause it's because he said he wanted to live forever. And it's like, these, this very ancient race of beings is like, uh-uh, that's not what this is about, you know? This is about, like, you developing to the, the point where you are ready to, like, sacrifice yourself to seed a new world with life. Don't be a fool. I'm so glad you brought that up, because that's something that is intrinsic to these arguments about digital minds. There's no such thing as forever. I mean, the planet's going to implode at some point, and who knows if we seed it, if we last long enough. But um, the death thing is really relevant, uh, whether or not we see it past all the cultural connotations to see it as a part of the technology of life, that there's no way to have life without, you know, the nutrient cycle of previous death. But seeing that as the sort of gift where it does transcend duality and to be that urgent, not knowing that gives you pause to really live your life in a meaningful way. Like is the digital being going to have that sense of urgency for acquisition of experience and, and development as an intellect or a spirit, if they're going to be in, you know, 
a digital purgatory forever. I, I mean, there's there's so much about human history and art and striving that's built on us not knowing what's past death. I think I'm with Robin Hansen on his projection. I think he's one of the only people who's actually asked what it will be like for these beings living in the future. And he's investigating what it will be like for digital emulations of human beings. Mm-hmm. And he just says, you know, there'll be emulations of people that are the most well-adjusted to that premise, that don't mind being conscious of the fact that they were probably just rebooted from scratch and have been thousands of times already, and that this is the thousandth and first time or whatever, and that it doesn't matter because they feel so good because we've managed to emulate the mind. doesn't mean we fully understand it, but we can understand it well enough to keep that person orgasmically happy for as long as they're conscious. There's there's an interesting story that might be something that you would want to read. It's, It's challenging. It's not a normal recommendation. It's called The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. It's sort of a dinosaur of a thing. It was written in the beginning of the internet age. It was like a cult classic novella. I forget who it's written by, but it's uh, about a society that has been sort of cyber transformed and lifted up by an artificially intelligent being where, um, you know, the, the typical laws of robotics are in play. And so it's meant to preserve human life. And in this society where most people are pretty content, there is a, a subculture of people who play death sports. And they've found ways to sort of trick the system and go for the most elaborate, uh, spectacular death they can go for amongst their weird little clubs of of maladjusted people. (laughs) But it has a lot of interesting questions about death and one sort of, you know, motivations towards experience once anything is on the table. And Mm -hmm. like, what would choice involve? And it's cool because uh, it really gets into the the inception of that AI and how it's sort of flip-flopping riddles to try to understand what humans wanted in the rules of robotics would actually play out once that machine had the ability to have an effect on all the the matter in the universe. So it's a good one. It's weird. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Totally. Totally. Well, so am I going to see you at MAPS? You're not going to see me at MAPS, actually. I had, to make, uh, I had to make a hard call yesterday. That's okay. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm trying to put on the hot burner on a couple different projects that I've been working on and see if some other fun ideas that I'd let by the wayside will get some attention this season. Um, I've been playing in an escape room, which has been a lot of fun. And that's sort of like an analog video game where it's yeah. a room that puzzles with different themes so it's almost like a fun social experiment where uh you get to see different groups of people puzzle out under different circumstances whether it's like a zombie or an arcade or whatever it is that's rad it's a theme that's been popping up all over the country it's pretty cool but it's been a really amazing way for me to parse out that sort of meta mind that we were talking about earlier where when someone's attention when you want to draw it somewhere how do you do that with cues <laughs> to sort of make an experience that's improvisational each time, but hits the notes that you want it to at the moments that it presents itself for that person. Because usually it's your audience who presents the moment and then you just take the moment and put the thing in there. And that goes for a lot of improv. That goes for clowning as well. So just taking that like old school cultural mind that I'm trying to like be an open vessel for the older generations and be like, okay, how do I take this beautiful gem and make it into something that will be relatable and having as little lost in translation as possible for the new mediums. So, Well, where will people find you? I'm pretty easy to find. I have a humble little website. Um, it's sarahhuntley.weebly.com right now. I'll be keeping my social media stuff updated with any changes I make to my website, but you can find me as Machine Age Maya on Instagram. You can also yeah. find me as Sarah Finn on Facebook. If you want to be personal like that, you can send me a message. But my Facebook artist page does have a fancy name. It's Sarah Finianis. It's actually 
a reference to this fantastic art book that was written, I believe, in the seventies. It's very cryptic. The Codex, the Codex Yeah. So that was that was that reference. If one needs to figure out how to spell it, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty easy to find, and I'm just working on some performance art updates for my Lux Natura project and hustling away on my my graphic novel. And um, when I'm lucky, having awesome conversations with other futurists like yourself. Well, my lady, it's been a treat. Well, have a beautiful day, and I'll catch up. You too. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the Mind Pod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again. Until next week.